You're listening to the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. We sit down with some of the most highly regarded experts in the field of rehab, from physical therapists, athletic trainers, and much more. We dive into what makes them tick and hear about the lessons they have learned along their journey. Come listen to what these experts have to say. Welcome into the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest requested by many of the former guests that I've had on the podcast. We have Meredith Shapu. Meredith, welcome in. Hi, Chase. Thanks for having me. All right, Meredith. Why don't you give people a little bit of background about yourself, um, kind of what got you into PT, where you're from, and kind of where you're at right now? Yeah, so I am from Minnesota originally. I grew up playing sports and actually had a lot of knee injuries myself that found my way to physical therapy for about 18 months of my high school athletic career. Um, I actually started undergrad at Jamestown College in North Dakota, where I was an elementary education major, and I had the goal to play college basketball. And then when I got there, I wasn't able to compete at the level um, that I physically thought I could. And it was really disheartening. Just due to my past in physical therapy, I decided to make a pivot in career choices and decided I wanted to kind of devote myself to helping athletes not have to struggle to get back to sport the way that I did. And then I ended up transferring to the University of Minnesota Duluth, where I studied exercise science and really started to kind of dive into the sports performance route and knowing that I wanted to do um, sports PT at that point. I then did PT school at Creighton University, and I graduated there um, in 2018. When I was at Creighton, I did a lot of research on ACL return to play metrics, whether it was patient reported outcomes or hop testing and strength. And then that kind of pivoted my way into residency after graduation where I was at Vanderbilt. And it was through that experience where I got to kind of develop into my own clinician. And I realized that in the world of sports rehab, we're missing a huge boat in considering the nervous system and how we prescribe our exercises and um, motor learning techniques, all of those things. So I started to dive into the literature a little bit more when I was there. And I really found my current PhD advisor's work, um, Dr. Dustin Grooms at Ohio University. And he was kind of the driving force for me to um, switch from clinic full-time to dive into a PhD that is more neuroscience focused, but then trying to tie it all back into sport and orthopedic rehabilitation, basically specialized around knee injuries. So when I was kind of looking um, at your work, um, you said you're a, like kind of specializing in neuromechanics. So for those who aren't familiar with neuromechanics, kind of me included, um, kind of give us like a brief rundown of what exactly neuromechanics is. Yeah, so I like to think of neuromechanics as the brain movement connection or the nervous system movement connection. And so traditionally in orthopedic or sports, we're really um, kind of tunnel visioned on biomechanics and that's strictly just movement. Uh, neuromechanics, what I'm really focused on is 
how does that movement generate? What is the coordination of the movement? What's the underlying neurophysiology that is propelling those movements in sport? So it's kind of the bridge between neuroscience and like hard science and biomechanics. Okay. Um, so now that you've, you're in year two of your PhD um, from neuromechanics, what are some things that you faced that you didn't think would be a challenge going into it? As far as the PhD okay. goes? In far as, as far as your PhD and then also in terms of... Um, you know, your, your specific <laughs> thesis, you know, some things that you might have encountered, you've yeah. encountered that you didn't expect before. Yeah, I think probably one of the most surprising things is uh, my area of study in neuromechanics isn't super well adopted in sports or orthopedic practice right now. Like it's not taught in most curriculums. It's not the standard of care, quote unquote, but the interest that clinicians have in this area is spectacular. And so it might not be a struggle, but it's um, probably the most surprised I've been at how like eager clinicians are to learn and like take the information that our lab is doing and like transferring it immediately into the clinic, whether that deals with kind of visual processing or cognitive processing. And so it's really given me a new perspective on like really how frontline clinicians are at implementing research. So it's allowed me to see the clinical aspect of the translation through a new lens, I guess. Okay. Um, so since this is, like you said, more, n not novel, but newer research that most people don't have experience with, um, I'm a new grad, so I also don't have much experience in that, you know, in neuromechanics. Um, what are some ways that clinicians that are interested in doing, you know, implementing it into their own practice, what are some different ways, especially in re uh, ACL rehab, that clinicians can kind of implement what you're studying, whether it be early stages all the way to return to sport? I think that's exactly what we're trying to figure out in our lab. So I just encourage people to um, look up resources. So whether it's Dustin Grooms, um, Greg Myers Lab at Emory, um, Adam or Lindsay Lepley, individuals at Ohio State, University of Toledo, Dave Sherman. Um, there's a list a mile long of people that I could give you that are starting to dive deeper into these things. And so I think the first thing is a clinician, you need to have resources. So you need to look for research articles, right, that have started to kind of dive into the neuro or motor learning components. And there's a lot of people out there that are doing it. And then number two is there's articles like clinical commentaries that immediately apply the information that's being researched in an easily digestible format. So I guess my first step would be look up the research, but find the specific commentaries that you are interested in or that allow you to have application right away. And then don't be afraid to reach out to those people who have written them, right? To figure out what are the pros and cons, right? Um, what, what are things that you would change now if you find a research article that was written, like one of my advisor's articles was written in 2015, and it was one of the first ones on using stroboscopic glasses, which are like glasses to um, impair your visual feedback during movement. 
And if you ask him now, he's like, oh, yeah, I would use these in like a different sense or whatever. And or this is how he's learned to adapt those into training differently from when he wrote the article previously. And so I think just reaching out to the authors, you're going to find a lot of inside scoop, probably on, you know, what they have found in the lab versus what they hear from other clinicians that are trying to implement it um, clinically. Right. And I think that's that's all great advice. Um, you know, something that's difficult for me specifically is trying to make sure, you know, I consume enough literature and then also figure out how to apply it because I can read all the literature I want, but it's not going to do me any good unless I begin to use it on patients that I see in the clinic every day. Um, and so having, <clears throat> especially reaching out to people that actually conduct the research because they can write as much as they want in the conclusion and the discussion, but kind of hearing their thought process, like you said, from day one when they did it to now might change. And so that's a good commentary to kind of get. Yeah. My favorite day to day is actually the conversations that I have with full time clinicians. And because being a PhD student, I don't get to treat 24 seven in the clinic. Like I treat um, for a few hours, a couple days a week, but it's nothing like what full time clinicians are doing. Right. So my favorite conversations throughout my day are when individuals reach out to me and they're like, hey, I tried this. It did or didn't work. You know, what should I do differently? Or what do you think based off of the literature? Because it's impossible for clinicians to digest every ounce of literature for every single body area and impairment. You know, so having conversations with the researchers that are neck deep in it is literally the translation of whatever they're studying to however you're practicing. Right. So I kind of want to go a little bit back in your, I guess, journey um, and talk about your residency at Vanderbilt. Kind of give us, you know, how tell us a little bit about your experience there, you know, things that you learned or, you know, different experiences that you had there. Yeah, so the residency at Vanderbilt um, is 18 months long, and so when I was there, I chose the program mainly because I really enjoyed the teaching aspect, and there's not a lot of sports programs that have a teaching in PT department curriculum. Usually that is saved for orthopedic residents, so I really like that about Vanderbilt's program, knowing that I wanted to go the academic kind of route. Um, so the first semester or two semesters, actually, you kind of split your time between an orthopedic clinic, you treat athletes in Vanderbilt Athletic Training Room, and then you're also teaching PT students at Belmont University. And then your second half of the program, you're basically like devoted to coverage and you are with uh, specifically football for the most part, but you have the opportunity to bounce around to basically any sport that you want. So I did a ton of time with Vanderbilt baseball and specifically the pitchers. I developed a really good relationship with them. And so I devoted an entire day of my week to just baseball. Um, and so the residency schedule allowed you the flexibility, which was great to basically dive into an area that you were really passionate about or wanted to learn more about from an on-field coverage perspective. What I really liked about the program and where I actually think I learned the most was in the orthopedic clinic. And so I think usually sports residents run out of general ortho and like try to get to the sideline for coverage and that kind of stuff. And I really, really enjoyed the clinic. 
I loved my individuals that had had a knee replacement or a hip replacement or had chronic pain because those were the instances where I felt like I grew the most because I had to figure out, I already had a high level activity sort of sports brain and I had to figure out how do I start lower, right? To progress up to those activities. Cause I think it's really easy, even at like an elite sport level to treat athletes at a very high level and we get complacent in how we regress. We get complacent in like the finer skills that we need to build before we're able to do high level activities. So I think residency really honed in that ability mm-hmm. for me. And then I was able to experiment with all of the cognitive and motor learning things that I was interested in. My residency mentors really facilitated that specifically um, Rebecca Dickinson and Chantel Phillips were phenomenal at kind of helping me explore the areas that I was interested in, but also honing me in and not letting me get too wild out in the weeds. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about your time when you were teaching at Belmont, since you, you know, enjoyed that time so much. Okay. What, you know, type of classes were you teaching and what was so enjoyable about it? Like, obviously you're doing a PhD, so, you know, teaching is probably in your future. Yeah. But what made, what made it so enjoyable? Uh, I, so to answer your first question, it was in like their orthopedic labs that you spent the most time. And as a PT student at Creighton, we had several orthopedic residents that were always in our labs. And as a student, I always felt less intimidated to ask a resident a question than I did my faculty. I never wanted to feel like I was doing poorly and show that to my faculty or like demonstrate kind of like weakness, I guess, in that sense that I didn't, I was unsure in my skill. So I always felt more comfortable as a resident or like asking a resident and just being at Belmont, I could tell that the students there felt very similar to how I did in school. And so I kind of took the opportunity at Belmont to like not only help teach their orthopedic curriculum, which is very similar to any, any place really standards, but to try to like, create a greater impact on like making mistakes is okay. And I will, I spent a lot of time like just mentoring students um, outside. They would ask me to do like extra study sessions. And I just really enjoy the mentorship part of teaching, not even just like the educational curriculum, the hard hands-on kind of stuff. I just think in academia and as a, teaching position, you can have such a large influence over a group of, you know, 30 to 50 kids or even higher, however, however large the PT class is, right? Then that impact translates into the clinic, right? So now instead of treating a patient one-on-one and you're impacting one patient, you're impacting an entire group of soon-to-be physical therapists. So that's, I guess why I like teaching so much. Um, The curriculum at Belmont, I was so lucky. My students were phenomenal, absolutely fantastic. And I'm lucky here at OU, I also get to help out in some of their orthopedic classes. And I serve as a clinical instructor um, to students in a pro bono Mm -hmm. clinic. 
And it's one of my favorite, favorite highlights of the week because I get to practice my clinical skills, but then you get to kind of meet students where they're at and just challenge them to like take the extra step, challenge them to get out of their comfort zone that we like to stay in mm -hmm. so much. I think your, your point about for students being able to kind of approach residents much more than faculty in a much like in a manner that wasn't so scary is absolutely true. We had um, a couple of sports residents in our program and one of them kind of sat in the back near us and I felt much more comfortable asking him questions rather than the people that were giving us tests. And, you know, they might be, they might be the people yeah. that say, you're supposed to know this skill by now at this point in your career. And, and it, it's a little scary. So it was nice to have someone that was able, you know, yeah. learning in their careers and kind of teaching you their clinical pearls, but it was also a little bit more approachable. Well, and as a resident too, right, you've just gone through what the students are going through you know, pretty recently. So I feel like you can relate to all of those same emotions, right? During practicals and the nerves and all of that stuff that faculty kind of forget existed <laughs> at that time. It's no longer a big deal to them, but it is as a PT student because like you want to do your best in all of those situations. And I think all PT students have a certain type A-ish personality about them that you want to do really well and succeed and like help others. So sometimes a less threatening environment like a resident is necessary. Absolutely. So I kind of, so after you were done with your residency at Vandy and then you kind of decided you wanted to go do your PhD, um, you mentioned a little bit about um, kind of finding your mentor, but what are the things that you look for specifically when finding a mentor? Because I know with PhDs, mentorship is one of like the most integral parts of it. So what, what characteristics or traits were you looking for? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people try to pursue a PhD, they look strictly at like programs, they try to find like movement science or biomechanics, kinesiology, something that's um, PT related or rehabilitation related. And the title of my program is actually Translational Biomedical Sciences, which means nothing to a lot of people. But it's the program that my mentor is in. And so I guess the advice I was given when I was looking into things was find the mentor, find the person that you want to study under and find the place that has the tools that you want to use for future research and for your future career. So I went through and I uh, talked with several potential mentors, all of which were fantastic. But for me, it was about fit and just instinctively knowing you're in the right spot. And when I came to interview um, at Ohio University, I first met my mentor at CSM. So as students, I highly encourage you to go to CSM. It is the best event to automatically get hooked up with other students and mentors right away. I first met my advisor there. And then that kind of gave me the courage to like just reach out to him on a whim and just see what the opportunities were. And then when I came to Athens to visit, I just felt like it was the right place for me. They had the resources. Um, he was at that time still like newer in the area and he had only had one PhD student at the time. 
And our conversations were on a level that were mutual. And to me, that was very important. I wanted to be mentored by somebody who looked at me at the same level and I could ask what I perceived as really dumb questions to with zero judgment. And so I didn't want to end up like the resident who was afraid to ask their, or, you know, PT student that was afraid to ask faculty questions kind of thing. And so I'll say that our lab here at OU is so inclusive and anybody can ask a question. Everybody helps everybody out. And it is potentially the most healthy working environment that I've ever been in. And so I think just by having conversations with people, you can make um, a decision that's best for you. And you need to go visit places. You need a PhD specifically is potentially four years plus of your life that you're going to devote to something. And you have to be sure that that is what you want to do in a place that you want to do it. And with a mentor that you get along with and your personalities mesh. I think residency is similar, but to me, residency is it's 12 months to 18 months. You can do that. Anybody can do that. And then you can like go on and get your job and kind of, but in that full-time job, that's where you want to make sure this is my spot. That's how I felt about PhD. And that's how I approached it was, where am I going to get the best experience? What mentor do I just really meld with really well? And who do I see um, like a future collaborator, like a lifelong collaborator? Right. And I've been very fortunate to have that here at OU. Everybody's fantastic. Your point about having a mentor that you can kind of approach on the same level is, you know, something that I think a lot of people look for, because obviously you're looking for someone that's more experienced because they're there to mentor you, but you also want them to be able to kind of relate to you and kind of understand, you know, the struggles or problems that you might be facing, because that makes everyone's experience a lot better, because if they don't if they're not able to kind of see where you're coming from, then, you know, the problem or the solutions might not be able to come as easily. Um, so I think that can be, you know, great advice for any clinician or any sort of field actually. Yeah. I think people like when you're searching for a mentor, you look for somebody who you look up to naturally. Right. But that needs to be reciprocated. Like a mentor can also learn from the mentee. And so I think you see sometimes relationships where the mentor is always mentoring, right? But to me, I think of that relationship as reciprocal. Like the mentor should also be trying to learn from um, their mentee and develop them and develop themselves at the same time. I think that's what makes um, Dr. Groom such a good mentor. And I've been incredibly fortunate. From PT school, I studied with Dr. Terry Grindstaff, my residency mentors, and now my PhD. I've just been surrounded by very selfless humans in the rehab profession. And I think there's a lot of those people in sports specifically. So I have a couple more questions then uh, we'll get you out of here. So kind of walk us through a day in the life of, you know, your day as a PhD. Now, I know it could probably change day to day, but, you know, we've had people on that tells us about like, you know, when they're covering, you know, home games, but we've never had a PhD candidate. So kind of tell us what it's like to be, you know, walking your shoes for the day. 
So right now I'm in a phase where I still have coursework. So I'm in two different classes. I'm in a neuroscience class and I'm in a grant writing class. So throughout my week, I may or may not have those kind of interspersed. And then um, on Mondays, I run a student pro bono clinic for the ROTC on campus. And so I get to mentor um, three or four students every morning in that or Monday mornings. And then I currently help with sideline coverage um, once a week at football practice to kind of maintain um, those skills as well. And then depending on the day or time period, I also teach in the sports elective course um, that Ohio University has for their third year PT students. So I help out with that and I help out with some of the orthopedic labs as well. And then you have research on top of that. So whether it's data collection, analyzing data, or just writing, manuscripts or working on IRB submissions, whatever kind of is going on at that time kind of dictates on what what is happening. Currently, I have a project that I'm enrolling um, as my own individual side project in our lab. And so like this week, I have two data collections for that back to back and we're using virtual reality and doing some balance metrics. But then we also use um, functional MRI. So we do brain scans on these individuals as well. So on any given day, it's pretty wild, but it usually starts usually eight to 10 hour days. And then I like to give myself some quiet reading time at night. Gotcha. I think that's like probably the most diverse day or week, I should say. Everything from like sideline coverage to teaching to you know, functional MRI scans. Um, I think that's a pretty unique, you know, situation that you got going on. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I think right around the time I contacted you, um, there was a tweet by PT Pinecast talking about their, what's your PT soapbox. And I really loved your, your tweet, um, or your response to that tweet. So why don't you tell people a little bit more about it? Cause it's something I've been trying to implement into my practice as, as well. It's all about the quads. Um, I have this, it started in PT school from Terry Grindstaff, where I just realized that like, we have so much quad inhibition after knee injury, and it's not even just ACLs, it's after any sort of knee surgery that goes unresolved. And we do manual muscle tests on them in the clinic. And that doesn't tell us a whole lot. And neurologically, after you have an ACL injury, you, a healthy person, can recruit 98% of their motor units in their quadriceps, okay? But after ACL reconstruction, there's a really healthy percentage of those people that never give it above like 85%. Even though when you test their strength output on even like a biodex, they might be symmetric, and they might have good strength output, their neurologic recruitment is altered. And so a lot of my research is trying to figure out why is that? Like what's going on behind that? And so I think one of the things that I learned in the clinic after I started reading this research was we really need to 
be testing this stuff. And the old concepts of short arc quads are bad after ACL reconstruction and long arc quads are bad after ACL reconstruction is false. You have more strain on the graft when you're walking than what those exercises put on it. And so I think we're starting to see the tables turn on how we're doing this rehab, which is phenomenal because Lynn Snyder-Mackler has been saying since 1990 or whatever year that we need to be doing this and it's now finally just catching on. And so I'm super excited that it's headed that direction. Sad that it's taken this long, but I think that just if you are unfamiliar with the quadriceps deficits that occur, look into the look into the literature and it'll tell you all the reasons why we should be doing open chain exercises and actually measuring quad strength in our rehab. Okay. I think that's a great soapbox. You know, as a new grad, as a new grad, <laughs> it's kind of scary because you learn like going, even going through the NPTE study exam, um, they kind they mentioned that open yeah. chain, the newer literature is saying that it's good to do open chain exercises, but for the test reasons, they say, you know, stick with closed chain, but even then it's still like scary because you don't want to be the person to mess it up. But, you know, reading research or reading stuff from you and other clinicians that are putting out stuff like this is really, you know, kind of reassuring that it's okay. And it's probably for the betterment of your patient that, you know, open chain exercises are okay, even early on in rehab. We need to consider tissue healing timeframes, right? I think we need to do a better job as physical therapists, really understanding the biological healing process, right? I'm not doing a full long arc quad when somebody's inhibited one week out of surgery. But if they have 90 degrees of knee flexion, I'll have them do a 90 degree isometric there. That's why we can test people so early in the biodex is there's very minimal strain on the graft in 90 degrees. So if all of their protocol, if they don't have range of motion restriction from a like a meniscus root tear or something like that, I'm putting people in that position to at least start firing their quad there and not just focusing on a quad set. And if you're doing quad sets, or actually if you're doing any of those exercises, there should be NMES on them. That is my <laughs> other soapbox. Is That is standard of care, as the literature is right now. Um, eccentrics as well. Eccentrics, NMES, open chain knee extensions at the appropriate timeline. And that's that's how our, our early stage rehab needs to be progressed. Okay. Um, that's awesome. I think, you know, pretty much the floodgates are opened once they're, you know, tissue healing times are appropriate, you know, pretty much everything goes. I love it. Um, so last question for you, Meredith, um, what are your, what's your advice for any aspiring sports PTs, whether they are an undergrad or, you know, currently in PT school? Honestly, stay hungry. There are so many opportunities, so many um, avenues in sports PT that you can you can do whatever you want and you can make the opportunity. Residency isn't for everybody. So if you want to work in professional sports, you don't necessarily have to do a residency. I have I know a lot of people who haven't done them, you know, that work in elite level sports. And so don't be afraid to network. Don't be afraid to 
use your resources and really like just try to be genuine and talk to people and figure out what you want to do. Um, Sports BT is very generous with their time. And so I think networking and staying hungry, not getting complacent is the best thing you can do. Find the area that lights your fire, that makes you want to go to work every day and keeps you curious. And then that's the route that you need to okay. go. I think that's great advice. Um, Meredith, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for really kind of, you know, talking, you know, so passionately about um, your area of research. I think a lot of people can f- learn from this. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or, you know, where can people find where you put out your work? Because I think your Twitter page has been like one of the, you know, best things on Twitter to kind of learn from. So is there where, where can we find your work at? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't tweet as much now as I used to. I got too busy, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, usually, I have an Instagram page that I usually post um, some pretty staggering articles on or ones that I think are pretty like high impact. And I generously send PDFs to people from there if they need them. So I know clinicians don't have access all the time. So I try to get back to as many people as I can. Um, that request those. Um, I highly suggest just like Google Scholar notificationing Dustin Grooms and anything that comes across from him or like a related search. There's so many cool people doing brain research now in this area and like motor learning. Um, Google Scholar notifications are a fantastic way to um, just tag people that you're interested in and you like their um, research and anytime something new or relevant to their area comes out it just gets sent to your inbox so you're never going to miss articles if you do that you don't have to go PubMed searching every week for what you're looking for for the most up-to-date stuff okay awesome Meredith again thank you so much for coming on we I really appreciate your time and this has been the latest episode of the sports rehab experts podcast Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Huge shout out to Meredith Chapu of Ohio University to talk about ACL and neuromechanics with us. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast or want to hear from more great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.